The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The president known as Individual One. This is Thursday, December 6th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news by patronizing my sponsors and with the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Even when there was no doubt that Russia had interfered with the 2016 presidential election and that officials of the Trump campaign had had multiple mysterious contacts with Russian operatives, an important question lingered. Did the president who emerged from that tainted process know his campaign was back-channeling with Russians in the midst of that Russian cyber attack and while the U.S. was punishing Russia for its invasion of Crimea? There is now evidence he did know, and thus he is now individual one in the federal criminal investigation that has traced that election interference from Moscow to the White House. Donald J. Trump is now a central figure in the investigation led by special counsel Robert S. Mueller III. There is now evidence the president was in regular contact with the people connected to Russia, which stole Democratic emails in 2016, and with the people connected to WikiLeaks, which published the emails that then tanked the Clinton campaign. Trump is now identified as individual one in two separate sets of court documents. There is now evidence that during the 2016 campaign, Trump continued to pursue his long-held dream of building a Trump Tower in Moscow and evidence the project would be funded by Russia. His efforts to build a skyscraper near the Kremlin with his name on it continued for the first 12 months of Trump's 16-month campaign. We know that although Trump and his personal lawyer Michael Cohen claimed the Russia real estate effort ended by January 2016, it actually continued until June 14th of that year, the exact same day the Washington Post reported the Russians had hacked the Democratic emails. That's the day the project stopped. We now know Trump's attempts to do business in Russia date back over 20 years and that to sweeten the Moscow Trump Tower deal, the Trump Organization offered the proposed $50 million penthouse apartment there to Vladimir Putin. And although the tower project never came to fruition, Trump insisted during the campaign he didn't know any Russians and that he had no business dealings with Russia. He said words to that effect 23 times in the summer of 16. But at the same time, Russia was offering to help the Trump campaign in the form of damaging information about the Democrats, and Trump officials were talking to Russia about lifting those pesky sanctions in return. The American people didn't know Trump was lying, but Russia did. Russia was in a position to help Trump both financially and politically, and it was in a position to hold over Trump its knowledge that he was lying to the American people about both of those things. Compromat, as the Russians call it, the would-be president was compromised. And all the while, Trump was saying the hackers could be from anywhere, not necessarily Russia, a 400-pound guy on a bed, he said, or maybe the Democrats had just faked being hacked. He talked in the campaign about better relations with Russia and about lifting those sanctions. As for Vladimir Putin, I believe we'd get along very, very well, said Trump in July 2015, answering a question from a woman with a Russian accent. We now know that woman is Russian secret agent Maria Butina, now behind bars in the U.S. for her role in the 2016 interference. So it was a Russian spy who got Trump to say publicly for the first time that sanctions wouldn't be needed if he were president. Maria Butina had successfully completed that part of her mission for Russia. And that brings us to Mike Flynn. 
the controversial retired Army general with important roles in the Trump campaign, the transition, and in the early days of Trump's presidency. It was Flynn who was glued to the president's side in the final months of the campaign and who led the lock-her-up chants at Trump's rallies. Two years ago this month, Flynn was telling a Russian ambassador not to worry about the new sanctions President Obama had imposed on Russia and not to retaliate because the Trump administration would immediately lift those sanctions and perhaps the others that had been imposed on Russia for taking Crimea from Ukraine. But Obama was still president, and it's illegal for a private citizen to make foreign policy deals with other governments. One year ago this month... Mike Flynn was charged with lying to the FBI about his chats with the Russian ambassador, and Flynn immediately pleaded guilty and agreed to help federal prosecutors. Clearly, he has been a lot of help in this past year, because special counsel Robert Mueller is recommending that Flynn not go to jail, that he not be locked up. Mueller's court-filed sentencing recommendation notes that Flynn sat for more than 19 sessions of questions and answered them in a timely fashion and in a way that helped prosecutors locate and flip other witnesses in a way that helped several criminal investigations, some of which have not yet been revealed. From the day he pleaded guilty, Mike Flynn has testified that he did what he did at the instruction of a very senior member of the transition team. That would be Jared Kushner the president's son-in-law, and the man Trump said would broker peace in the Mideast, broker an immigration deal with Mexico, and a whole lot more. For the past year, Trump's own lawyers have believed that that very senior member of the transition team was the husband of Trump's daughter, Ivanka. But put a pin in this. Vice President Mike Pence led that transition team. When General Flynn was under fire for his chats with the Russian ambassador, the vice president rushed to Flynn's defense. It was Pence who had vetted the president's top advisors, including Mike Flynn. It was Pence who approved Flynn as Trump's national security advisor, even after Flynn's lawyers had warned Pence in writing about their client's possible conflicts of interest as national security advisor. Once Flynn was caught red-handed, Pence claimed that Flynn had lied to him about the nature of those calls with Russia's Sergei Kislyak. And lying to Pence became the grounds for Flynn's firing. Nothing here about Pence that I've just said is relevant yet to what we have learned this week from Mike Flynn and Trump's former personal lawyer. Consider this a post-it note. We may want to pull down from the wall later. Pence was recommended as Trump's running mate and VP by Trump 2016 campaign manager Paul Manafort, who we now know has lied to investigators and spied on the investigation on behalf of Individual One. Individual One is the guy who was simultaneously asking then-FBI Director James Comey to back off the Flynn investigation. It was Trump who was warned by the Justice Department four days into his presidency that Russia had his national security advisor by the cojones. And it was Trump who waited three weeks after that warning until he reluctantly fired Flynn, but allowed him to continue to sit in on classified intelligence briefings for those final three weeks. It was two years ago this month that Mike Flynn, acting on orders from Trump's top lieutenants, talked Russia out of retaliating for Obama's election meddling sanctions. It was a year ago this month Flynn admitted he'd done that and lied about it on behalf of the campaign, the transition, and the presidency. And on that date, Mike Flynn wrote, 
I recognized the actions I acknowledged in court today were wrong, and through my faith in God, I am working to set things right. My guilty plea and agreement to cooperate with the special counsel's office reflect a decision I made in the best interests of my family and of our country. I accept full responsibility for my actions. And a year later, Mike Flynn is not going to prison in spite of his serious crimes because he has talked to prosecutors about where he got his orders and whatever else he knows about the reasons for those orders. And he's not the only one helping. A week ago today, the president was paying close attention to the news for anything about his pal Roger Stone or his pal Jerome Corsi. Trump, in fact, praised Stone publicly for promising to never testify against him. Nice to know some people still have guts, tweeted Trump. Prosecutors, by the way, often view statements of that sort as witness tampering, which is yet another serious crime. They just don't normally see it done publicly because mobsters are generally smarter than that. Trump was also focused one week ago on his ex-campaign manager, Paul Manafort, for sticking it to Mueller with a string of lies and for reporting back to Trump's lawyers what Manafort had learned about the Mueller investigation. Trump publicly praised Manafort on Twitter for not talking, not spilling any beans. Trump said he would not rule out a pardon for Manafort, the man who had just spied on Mueller on the president's behalf. Again, some apparent criminal witness tampering here. What the president may be overlooking with his power to pardon is that Manafort and Stone can still be hit with other federal charges later and with state-level charges that cannot be pardoned by a president. Robert Mueller also has options that have not yet been ruled out. We'll have a clearer view of Mueller's intentions for Paul Manafort tomorrow when Mueller outlines how Manafort lied and how he spied while pretending to cooperate with investigators. But with the president's attention focused on Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, and Jerome Corsi, he didn't see it coming when his former fixer lawyer Michael Cohen reached his first official plea deal with Mueller and admitted he had kept Trump updated on the Trump Tower in Moscow well into the campaign, and that he and Trump had both lied about it. The president and the rest of us also learned that Mueller is looking at Trump's regular phone calls with Roger Stone, while Stone was kept updated on WikiLeaks by his friend, Jerome Corsi. It was on October 2nd, 2016, that Roger Stone tweeted, Wednesday, Hillary Clinton is done. The next day, the president's son answered a WikiLeaks message by asking what the Wednesday leak would be about. When the Russian hacking hit the news, Trump told a news conference, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. And then he added, let's see if that happens. That'll be next. The 12 Russians Mueller recently indicted are suspected of trying to hack Hillary Clinton's emails within hours of Trump's Russia, if you're listening, invitation to do exactly that. In August, Roger Stone got another email from Roger Corsi. Word is, friend in embassy plans two more dumps, it began. Friend in embassy refers to WikiLeaks' Julian Assange, who's holed up as a fugitive from justice in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Corsi's message to Stone continues ominously. Two more dumps, impact planned to be very damaging. Corsi's email to Stone goes on to say that the hackers seem to want to ruin Clinton campaign manager John Podesta and to force Hillary out of the race. It's what the hackers seem to want, the email said. One of the dumps occurred within one hour of the breaking news about Trump's genital-grabbing Access Hollywood tape. Coincidence or collusion? 
The Mueller team has reportedly been looking into that, too. When Roger Stone answered the unknown calls late at night in 2016, he knew it was Trump calling from a blocked number. He knew because it had happened again and again. How often they spoke cannot be pinpointed through phone logs since Stone says Trump would sometimes call from other people's phones. These late-night calls continued while Stone was tweeting about the exact date of the end of the Clinton campaign as Trump trailed in the polls at that time. And this is why the President of the United States is now Individual One in a federal criminal and counterintelligence investigation that is progressing now at a breakneck pace. All the various defense lawyers for all the possible players in the Trump-Russia scandal have just heard from Robert Mueller that he's tying up loose ends at the moment, that his case is, for the most part, complete. With Tuesday's revelations about former Trump National Security Advisor Mike Flynn and the revelations about Paul Manafort's crimes and lies tomorrow, Robert Mueller is ready to show us what he's got. And Trump is tweeting frantically. Collusion is often a word used by prosecutors to describe a conspiracy, two or more people plotting together to break the law. The legal term is actually conspiracy, a charge we've heard in the news many times. When you hear lawyers talking about collusion, they're talking about the crime of conspiracy. And conspiracy is a serious crime. All along, the question's been, was there collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia? But because of the president's words and deeds, another question arose. Was there obstruction of justice? Was there an active effort to thwart a federal investigation, much less one of this magnitude? There now appear to be cases for both collusion and obstruction. Regardless of its outcome, the purpose of the Trump Tower New York meeting in June of 2016 was to get dirt on Hillary Clinton that had been promised by Russian operatives. By that time, at least eight Trump campaign officials had contact with at least 13 Russians, either about the Moscow project or about helping the campaign. Those eight officials include Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, Mike Flynn, Jeff Sessions, George Papadopoulos, Jared Kushner, and Donald Trump Jr. Roger Stone kept the Trump campaign updated on his progress with WikiLeaks. The case for collusion gets stronger. The case for the impeachable offense of obstruction, meanwhile, has grown even more. There is ample evidence Trump has worked to stop or at least derail the Mueller probe. Trump tried to get FBI Director Comey to back off of Mike Flynn. Trump fired the federal prosecutor who warned him that Flynn had been compromised by Russia, and then he fired the FBI director who didn't seem interested in easing up on the Mike Flynn investigation. The Trump White House then issued a false cover story for the firing of the FBI director. It helped House Republicans put out a report saying that the FBI had used deceptive means to get its surveillance warrant for Trump campaign official Carter Page. Trump lied to the American people about the New York Trump Tower meeting while spreading false conspiracy theories about President Obama, including the never-happened bugging of Trump Tower. There are credible reports Trump has offered presidential pardons to both Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort, and he's accepted updates on the Mueller investigation from a just-pretending-to-cooperate Paul Manafort. On Monday of this week, Trump may have crossed a legal line with his tweets, encouraging Manafort and Roger Stone to keep quiet and threatening life in prison for Michael Cohen, something Trump does not have the power to do. Prosecutors say these tweets alone qualify for a criminal charge of obstruction of justice. The president had shocked America before with his tweets. This was the first time he'd broken the law with them. The case for obstruction gets stronger by the day.
with 10 years of loyal service to Donald Trump under his belt, and Trump now two months into the White House, Michael Cohen left Florida for his home in New York believing he was safe. He left Mar-a-Lago in 2016 believing the man he had served so loyally for so long would pardon him if he were charged with lying about Stormy Daniels. Cohen had, after all, lied out of loyalty to Trump, a devotion he had declared on TV, saying he'd take a bullet for the Donald. During and after the FBI raid on Cohen's office, Cohen's lawyers and Trump's lawyers worked together and shared information. Trump even publicly defended Cohen after the raid, calling him a good man and the raid a disgraceful situation. But in the days that followed, the president began to distance himself from Cohen. Trump stopped taking his calls. And within two weeks, Trump was telling Fox and friends that Cohen did only, quote, a tiny, tiny little fraction of his legal work. Trump suddenly sounded as though he barely knew this Michael Cohen of whom you speak, and that's the day Cohen realized there would be no pardon for him. The man who'd sworn he'd take a bullet for his boss is now asking for a sentence of time served in exchange for what he has to offer prosecutors. And Michael Cohen knows a lot of things about a lot of things that pertain to the president. He's already spent more than 70 hours under oath volunteering information and answering questions for Robert Mueller's investigators for most of those hours. In the remaining hours, Cohen has cooperated with federal prosecutors for the Southern District of New York and state prosecutors for the Attorney General, the Department of Taxation, and others. In his guilty plea, Cohen explained that he broke the law, lying to Congress and violating campaign finance laws, among others, on behalf of Donald Trump and out of loyalty to Trump. He says he now regrets that. Cohen is said to be mystified that Trump remains unscathed by these scandals while his own life has been destroyed. So Michael Cohen is taking responsibility for his part in Trump's misdeeds, pleading guilty, and doing so even before he was offered a deal. And his lawyer says Cohen is no longer interested in being pardoned by this president. A week has now passed since Michael Cohen agreed to plead guilty to charges of lying to Congress about the Moscow Trump Tower project. Lying to Congress is a federal felony. Cohen says he also lied when he told Congress he had no plans to go to Russia after the Republican convention. He says he lied to protect the president. How long Cohen spends in prison, or whether he goes to jail at all, will depend on how valuable he proves to the Mueller probe. Already being called the investigation's star witness for what he knows and for his willingness to tell it, Michael Cohen may just be in a position to get a sentence of time served, although that's ultimately up to the judge. Cohen will be sentenced this coming Wednesday, December 12th. We will learn more about his crimes and cooperations tomorrow as well. Robert Mueller already has documents and witnesses to corroborate Cohen's testimony. Michael Cohen has just handed his ex-boss over to Robert Mueller. If it can now be proved that Trump lied in his written answers to Mueller about Russia, then it would seem to be game over for Donald Trump. It's worth remembering that Trump's lawyers refused to let him sit for a face-to-face -face interview, insisting on written answers instead. They were worried about a perjury trap. That may have been exactly the wrong strategy, since Trump's spoken words tend to be vague and disconnected. Written answers, especially as written by lawyers, are laser-focused on a particular point. But if they are lies, they're now in writing and crystal clear in their meanings. Trump's legal team also insisted there be no questions about obstruction. So 
Mueller's questions focused on Trump's relationship with Russia, what he knew and when. That, too, may have been a miscalculation by Trump's lawyers. With his obstruction case already clear, Mueller was looking for lies about collusion and zeroing in on the president. And it was obstruction that brought impeachment for Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. Michael Cohen's testimony indicates that Donald Trump Jr. also lied under oath about the Moscow Tower project. Don Jr. reportedly expects to be indicted any day now. Roger Stone and Jerome Corsi say they both expect to be indicted soon. Eric Prince, brother of Trump's Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, also appears to have lied to Congress, so he too may be indicted. Mueller has reportedly alerted several people that if they have lied to Congress, they will be prosecuted. And Mueller's now looking at the involvement of Trump's daughter and top-level advisor Ivanka in the Moscow Trump Tower project. It's already clear Mueller's keenly focused on Donald Trump himself. And while there are no legal consequences for the lies Trump has told publicly, there are serious consequences for any lies he may have given in writing to special counsel Robert Mueller. Still, the public deception continues, with Trump telling reporters that Cohen is lying, after calling Cohen a weak person who's now lying to avoid prison and calling Mueller out of control. In truth, Robert Mueller appears to have a good hand, and that he's just about ready to play it. Will Trump's new attorney general short-circuit the Mueller probe? Are Senate Republicans turning on Trump? That pesky global warming just won't go away. And remembering George H.W. Bush, plus a comment from Bob Seska after this. Thank you again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for all your holiday shopping. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. So please bookmark it as your shopping button. I got a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make there through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button. At your desktop, it's just under the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just beneath the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And thanks again. Many Americans were greatly relieved this week to learn that Matt Whitaker, the Trump-loyal acting attorney general who thinks the Mueller probe is a witch hunt, has not laid a finger on that investigation since taking office so far as we know. Although Whitaker refused to recuse himself for his clear bias and conflict of interest, he did, to the surprise delight of many, agree to run it by the ethics lawyers at the Justice Department before diving in. And while that ethics process continues in the monstrous bureaucracy at the DOJ, the Mueller probe is still being supervised by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Despite his support for Donald Trump and Felix Sater, the point man on the Moscow Tower project, Matt Whitaker is also on record with some surprisingly critical comments about Trump. Whitaker said on TV and radio shows that Trump plays with the truth. He said Trump's refusal to release tax returns was self-serving. Referring to the choice between Trump and Clinton, he said, both these candidates are unlikable. On one show, he wondered aloud, quote, if anybody has the president's ear or if he just kind of watches news accounts and responds, which is a little dangerous. When Trump tweeted that, quote, Obama had my wires tapped, this is McCarthyism, Whitaker responded by saying, I don't know if it was to throw everybody off the trail or what, but it was a little outlandish, to say the least. Plays with the truth, self-serving, unlikable, outlandish, dangerous. 
Whitaker has advised that Trump distance himself from the white supremacists who support him. These words from the man who, as Trump's acting attorney general, believes his boss has put the nation on the right path by being so clever with the media and his political opponents. A man who has mostly supported Trump, who believes the Russia investigation is a witch hunt, and who, despite the ethics process, has the authority at any moment to veto any move by the special counsel. Will he? So far, so good. Departing Arizona Republican Senator Jeff Flake is so far sticking to his pledge not to vote for any Trump judicial nominee without a bill protecting special counsel Robert Mueller, a bill other leading Republicans have refused to support. Now Flake has been joined by Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, at least in the case of Trump's pick for a district judgeship, a man heavily criticized for his support of state laws that discriminate against African Americans. With all 49 Democrats in the Senate poised to vote no, no votes from Flake and Scott doomed the nomination to fail 51 to 49. The nominee is Thomas Farr, who, as campaign lawyer for the late Senator Jesse Helms, sent out 120,000 postcards to intimidate black voters, warning they could be prosecuted if they tried to vote in a precinct in which they've lived for fewer than 30 days. Any card that was returned undelivered would be used to challenge any vote cast by the addressee. Two Republican senators are saying no to this Trump nominee and to Trump. And the number of Republican resistors in Congress appears to be growing. Trump brushed off the CIA and instead presumed innocent the crown prince of Saudi Arabia in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a U.S. resident who was also a journalist for one of the nation's leading newspapers. It led Republican senators to do something they had not done before with this president. They said no. They voted to consider cutting off U.S. military aid to the Saudi government for its murderous war in Yemen. The Senate vote was 63 to 37, and while that bill has no teeth, it sends a message to Trump that the lawmakers are willing to do what they've threatened. They're finally willing to say no to Trump. And then they heard the tape. Key senators got a briefing this week from CIA Director Gina Haspel in which she played them a tape complete with transcript of the torture, killing, and dismembering of Jamal Khashoggi. South Carolina's Lindsey Graham came away believing the CIA assessment that Khashoggi's killing was ordered by Saudi Arabia's crown prince and not believing Trump's maybe he did and maybe he didn't assessment. There's not a smoking gun, said Graham. There's a smoking saw. He's referring to the surgical bone saw used to cut the journalist's dead body into easily transportable pieces for disposal elsewhere. The tape, combined with a mountain of evidence gathered by the CIA, convinced those key Republican senators that the Saudi prince had done a disgusting, unforgivable thing, and that strategic ally or not, something had to be done. It's a huge setback for the president and son Don Jr., who had grown close to the crown prince in a business sense. But it's a bit of a revelation to these Republican senators who've been so loyal to Donald Trump that they have been backing a man who's been backing a cold-blooded killer. They also realized they could not trust Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, or Trump's current National Security Advisor, John Bolton, both of whom said they didn't need to hear the tape or see the evidence. Bolton said he didn't listen because he doesn't speak Arabic and wouldn't understand it, even though he has translators and transcripts at his fingertips. Trump's defense secretary has also lost the trust of Republican lawmakers 
since Jim Mattis joined the president in playing down the CIA's assessment that the crown prince ordered Khashoggi's murder. They do trust Trump's CIA director, Gina Haspel, because although reluctantly, she played them the tape and showed them the evidence that the president, for business and personal reasons, chose to dismiss. After the CIA report, Trump said Saudi Arabia was too important an ally and weapons customer to jeopardize with all this talk of the crown prince ordering the killing of the Washington Post reporter. Trump also refuses to listen to the tape because he says it's a recording of suffering. But key Republicans in the Senate have now heard it. And the honeymoon between Trump and the Republican Senate is on the rocks just when he needs it the most. Democrats, meanwhile, prepare to take the House, and the very first bill they plan to introduce is about ethics in elections and in the conduct of our public officials. The bill has been in the works since long before the Democrats won an astounding 40 House seats in the midterms. H.R. 1 won't necessarily be the bill that gets the first vote, but it's been designated number one to underscore its importance. The bill requires new disclosures about campaign donors, new codes of ethics for Supreme Court nominees, no more first-class travel for federal office holders, and programs to expand voting and to shrink the practice of partisan gerrymandering. Likely House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, she could use the public support to get this through the House, the Senate, and the President. Quoting her, our best friend in this debate is the public. From Georgia and North Carolina to Michigan and Wisconsin, lame duck Republicans are fighting back after taking a beating in the midterm election. Republicans in Georgia stand accused of voter suppression, even in this week's runoff election for Secretary of State. Republicans in North Carolina are accused of voter fraud. Fraud, the very thing Republicans are always screaming about. The Republicans have been accused of voter fraud in an unresolved congressional race in North Carolina in which one mostly black district reports that 40% of its absentee ballots were never returned. Other predominantly African-American districts had unreturned absentee ballot rates of 27% or less, but one had a non-return rate of 40 only 19% of the voters in Bladen County are Republicans, but the Republican candidate won 61% of the absentee votes in that county while losing the absentee vote in every other county in the state. Republican lawmakers in Michigan are making sure that the new Democratic governor, the new Democratic attorney general, and the new Democratic secretary of state don't have the kinds of powers their Republican predecessors had, especially when it comes to campaign finance reform. But the most naked attempt at ignoring the voters' election decisions is in Wisconsin, where Republican lawmakers have voted to strip some of the main duties of the new Democratic governor and the new Democratic attorney general. The will of the voters in Wisconsin and elsewhere had already been subverted by partisan gerrymandering put in place by Republican-held state legislatures. As a result, Republicans who got less than half the votes Democrats got in Wisconsin last month won two-thirds of the seats in the Wisconsin State House, and this week they rushed to change the rules for the new Democratic governor and other top positions. Among other things, the curbing of powers would prevent the new governor and the new attorney general from keeping their campaign promise to stop the state's pullout of Obamacare. It goes to the heart of what democracy is all about, says Wisconsin's Attorney General-elect Josh Call. 
as Republicans hurried to make sure the incoming Democrats couldn't undo their political dirty work. Protesters stood outside the Capitol on a December night in Wisconsin to shout, respect my vote. They were ignored. The incoming Democratic administration in Wisconsin will now spend at least its first two years fighting the Republican changes in court. A nearly identical fight has dragged on for two years in North Carolina, and it drags on still today. The stock market soared on Monday on Trump's announcement that he had declared a truce in his trade war with China. But in a Tuesday morning tweet, Trump wrote that the tariffs are absolutely the best way to, quote, max out our economic power. I am a tariff man, tweeted Trump, capitalizing the words tariff and man as if it were the name of a superhero. Wall Street didn't like Tariff Man or the tweet he wrote in on, disagreeing sharply that tariffs are the way to go. And then your 401k took it in the shorts as the Dow dropped nearly 800 points, third biggest one-day drop in history. From a Trump tweet to your retirement investments. After a day off for a national day of mourning, the stock market slide continued this morning. Or maybe you're diversified, stocks and bonds, to play it safer because bonds are usually up when stocks are down. Yeah, about that. A dark mood has settled over the bond market, and that could be a bad sign for the entire economy. The yield on 10-year Treasury notes has fallen from 8% to 2.5%. That's about where it was in 2007, just before the Great Recession that's taken years to escape. Representatives from nations around the globe are in Poland as we speak for another round of climate talks. Yesterday, they got some disappointing, sobering, heartbreaking news. And so did we. Carbon emissions around the world reached a new record high in 2018. Without U.S. involvement, the Paris Climate Accord and other efforts have so far not only failed to decrease carbon output, they haven't even held the line. The numbers held steady for two years running, 2014 through 2016. There was hope we were holding the line. But emissions increased by about 1.5% in 2017. And this year, they're expected to have increased by 2.7%. It's now, as scientists at this conference call it, a speeding freight train. U.S. carbon emissions were up 2.5%. China's were up 4.7%. Quoting U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, we are in trouble. We are in deep trouble with climate change. For many people and even countries, he said, this is already a matter of life and death. And then there was the stark warning from respected historian Sir David Attenborough as those climate talks opened this week. His warning is in this quote, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. Time is running out, warned Attenborough, adding, the world's people have spoken. They want you, the decision makers, to act now. Leaders of the world, you must lead. Republican leaders in the U.S., however, are still in denial. There are notable exceptions. Lindsey Graham and incoming Senator Mitt Romney believe in man-made climate change and believe something has to be done, and they are joined by North Carolina's Tom Tillis. But incoming Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn has falsely claimed that the earth has started to cool and that scientists disagree about climate change. Incoming Republican Senator Rick Scott says the seas are warming and rising on the shores of his state, but just can't bring himself to say that humankind's had anything to do with it. Iowa Republican Joni Erst believes the world's climate is 
just going through a cycle. Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass says of the latest government climate report, there's too much alarmism in the climate science community. And while President George W. Bush believed in climate change and man's contribution to it, Trump and the party he now represents continue to dismiss the warnings no matter how clearly and ominously they are stated. In Trump administration environmental impacts this week, the White House is working to end subsidies for people who buy electric cars, solar panels, and other alternative energy products. Car buyers can get anywhere from 2500 to 7500 back in tax credits, as things stand now. But that was Obama's policy. We want to end all those subsidies, says Trump economic advisor Larry Kudlow. And by the way, he adds, other subsidies that were imposed during the Obama administration for renewables and so forth. When would this happen? 2020 or 2021, he says. Trump promised to end the subsidies to punish GM for announcing plant closings and layoffs. But GM wouldn't be affected by what's being dealt to the entire U.S. auto industry. The subsidies were already limited to the first 200,000 electric and hybrid cars each company sells. GM and Tesla have already met that threshold. Other companies need a few more years to get there. The new Democratic House may have something to say about this. Also this week, Trump gave several oil companies permission to look for oil in the Atlantic Ocean, starting with seismic blasts. Deafening blasts of air would occur every few seconds for weeks on end, killing, injuring, and chasing off undersea creatures. And some of those animals are federally protected endangered species, unless you get a permission slip that says otherwise. The National Marine Fisheries Service in the Trump administration will now grant incidental harassment authorizations to big oil. Official permission slips to harass those protected species before the companies start drilling for more climate-changing fossil fuels. And the current Supreme Court, majority conservative, has let stand Trump's plans to build a border wall regardless of any environmental impact statements. Big legal win today, tweeted Trump. For as much as many Americans disliked the politics or policies of President George Herbert Walker Bush, they respected him. They sensed that bare-knuckle politics and conservative policies aside, he was probably a nice guy. In today's context, a nice, normal president you either supported or you didn't. The first President Bush became unlikely good friends with Democrat Bill Clinton, who'd beaten him out of a second term, and SNL's Dana Carvey, the comic actor who lampooned him. Bush was bipartisan at heart and able to laugh at himself, unlike the person now known to prosecutors as Individual One. George Herbert Walker Bush was the second of five kids growing up during the Great Depression. After serving his country as a decorated pilot in World War II, Bush got into politics. After losing his first election, he wrote to a friend, when moderation becomes a dirty word, we have some soul-searching to do. But along his way to the White House, he ran an oil company, served in Congress, became a delegate to the U.N., chairman of the Republican Party, ambassador to China, and head of the CIA. So Bush entered office with as much preparatory experience as any president ever, instead of, say, some real estate investments in a reality TV show. Bush was also a kinder, gentler president. 
for all else that could be said about an array of Bush decisions and policies and fierce politics, he did guide this country out of the Cold War that had just been ended by his immediate Republican predecessor, Ronald Reagan. Soldier statesman George H.W. Bush was president when the Berlin Wall came down, the Iron Curtain fell, and the Soviet Union, this feared enemy, no longer existed. Bush talked Germany into staying in NATO in the midst of all that chaos. In his post-presidential years, he played some golf, did some skydiving, and wore funny socks. His funeral was historic, attended by all living presidents, putting Trump and Obama face-to-face for the first time since the inauguration. It was a president eulogized by his president's son, who broke down with emotion in the end. And that's a first in the timeline of American history. The nation paid its respects to George H.W. Bush this week, following his death at age 92. Should liberals be honoring the life and legacy of the first President Bush? You don't have to read the lips of Salon.com's Bob Seska. You can just listen. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. Being a liberal Democrat, there are certain opinions that I have to either keep to myself or roll the dice and mention publicly at the risk of irritating people who might otherwise agree with me on whatever. It's never a pleasant experience, but I've tended toward going public and owning it rather than withholding my views out of fear. Frankly, to this day, I'm still feeling the repercussions from my very outspoken criticisms of Glenn Greenwald and Edward Snowden in 2013, more than five years ago. I still believe I was right to pick apart Greenwald's bastardization of journalism, not to mention his and Snowden's seemingly cozy relationship with Russia. About those two positions, I wrote more than 100 articles that year and well into 2014, and I regret nothing. Even the fact that I lost a considerable number of social media followers in the process. Rewinding more than eight years, I even scolded the Iraqi reporter who tossed shoes at then-President George W. Bush. I, of course, was never a fan of Bush 43, and I never will be. But I thought the incident was disturbing and actually ended up generating sympathy for an otherwise unsympathetic, destructive president. Oh, and he was the president, and despite Bush 43's awfulness, I still respected the office. Worse for me, however, is that I also scolded fellow liberals for cheering the shoe-throwing incident. I recall discussing on my podcast that in America, we solve our problems through clever usage of words, peaceful activism, and the ballot box, not physical assaults. Folks listened, then went back to cheering the shoe tosser. This doesn't make me a conservative apologist, I don't think, but naturally my liberal readers and colleagues tend to label me that way now and again, so be it. I'm no one's disciple and I don't subscribe to any clique. For better or worse, I have confidence in my liberal-leaning values, but I don't take positions based on ideology. Weirdly, one of my most unpopular positions for a good long while was my admiration for Barack Obama. As with any leader, I was well aware of his flaws, but I was also acutely aware that he was a -a one-of-a-kind president, worthy of the benefit of the doubt. Once again, I ended up inciting liberals like Cenk Uger, who pejoratively labeled me an Obama bot, merely because I thought we were witnessing an historic figure who was and still is a thoughtful, brilliant leader in the American narrative, free of scandals and hesitant to embrace the easier, crappier aspects of politics. Again, it got to a point where I legitimately debated with myself whether I should be so overt in my defense of his presidency. In the end, I stood by my convictions. If the Obamabot label follows me deeply into the future, fine. I'm actually kind of proud of it, especially knowing that today, given the Trump crisis, 
Aren't we all Obama bots? Nevertheless, the same liberals who are wagging their fists in the direction of George H.W. Bush's coffin are likely the same liberals who, when Obama eventually departs this mortal coil, will hastily remind us about how it was Obama who killed Anwar al-Awlaki, an American expat who joined al-Qaeda in Yemen, and it was Obama who droned Awlaki's 16-year-old son. It was Obama, they'll tweet, who spied on millions of Americans and who failed to close Guantanamo. In their view, these things are impossible to overlook, even with the laundry list of upsides. There's a strain on the left that tends to reject the redemptive, and which only sees the ugly things, the lapses in judgment, the exceptions. In the case of Obama, any rational observer will see a leader who rose from literally nothing, raised by a single mom to go on to be the first African-American editor of the Harvard Law Review, an accomplished and gifted author, a state senator, a U.S. senator, and, against all odds, as well as a deeply racist nation, he arguably became the most progressive president we've seen since FDR. He rescued the economy from a second Great Depression and passed universal health care with an eye toward eventual single payer. But some of us will only see the drones and the metadata. Some of us are out for blood. We savor the relentless scolding of all things. And so it goes with George H.W. Bush. When I first became ensconced in politics while still in high school, I naively identified as a Republican. In 1988, I worked on the Bush Quail campaign from its headquarters in the Hotel Washington on 15th Street in D.C., just a block from the White House. However, by 1992, I had registered to vote as a Democrat and cast my absentee ballots first for Paul Songus in the primaries and for Bill Clinton in the general. Because of my past, Bush's life carries with it an admittedly nostalgic patina. But I can honestly say that even though I went on to disagree with his policies and especially disagreed with what I learned about how he ran his campaign in 1988, I still don't hate him with the fevered rage of some of my liberal friends who seem quick to remind us all how allegedly evil he was. Yes, his record on AIDS is deplorable, and his association with Roger Stone's former cohort, the late Lee Atwater, is unforgivable. But even knowing his flaws and gaping errors in judgment, I find it extremely difficult to join the chorus of liberals condemning him in death. In the grand scheme, his trespasses were relatively minor compared to other presidents, including marble men like Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, and even the aforementioned FDR. Shall we condemn Lincoln for suspending habeas corpus or for threatening to arrest the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court or for dragging his feet on emancipation? Should we condemn Teddy Roosevelt for embracing white supremacy? Should we delete FDR's legacy from history because of Japanese internment camps and for developing nuclear weapons? The rational view is to, yes, condemn the bad acts, but to evaluate the men and their presidencies both fairly and in context. You and I might not have been in love with Bush's mistakes or most of his political positions, but there's much to admire as well. Bush passed the Clean Air Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. He presided over the end of the Cold War, and he understood America's impatience for war by liberating Kuwait and then bailing out of the region. In great contrast to his son, Bush 43, not to mention Donald Trump, Bush 41 famously pushed for a kinder, gentler America and a leadership style that rejected bullying. He was a war hero who put nation first when he reversed his position on raising taxes, and he was abundantly gracious in defeat. 
Post-presidency, Bush took unpopular positions on the NRA, renouncing his membership, and on the candidacy of Hillary Clinton, voting for the Democrat in lieu of Trump. On top of all that, he knew how to laugh at himself. Sure, it burnishes our liberal cred to piss on his grave in view of our friends on Twitter, but we do well to see the broader context of the American presidency, especially now when the institution is being wrecked by Trump. We should be encouraging Republicans to be more like Bush rather than stomping our feet, insisting that Republicans of all varieties are unworthy and irredeemable. You might be shocked to hear this, but there are still good ones out there with whom we can negotiate and even with whom we can forge alliances. At the end of my life, I'd like to think I won't be remembered for the myriad awful things I've done and the wonderful people I've hurt. I'd like to think I'll be remembered for my character, my better deeds, and the body of work I leave behind. I really, really hope that'll be the case. Though this week, seeing the brutal condemnations of a decent but flawed man in the face of his family, and before he's even buried, I'm not sure whether I've done enough to redeem those mistakes. So no, I won't be joining my friends as they condemn George H.W. Bush. I know it's an unpopular position, but to reference the old Dana Carvey joke, I'm not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Donald Trump, on the other hand, I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on Tuesday. Would you like six fries with that? Porn for prisoners, a black eye for CBS, and that robot is a jerk. In the third and final segment, up next... If you're looking for gift ideas for the holidays, get the Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook you up with your favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Hellers stay in your ears with five hours of use and 100 hours of standby time between USB charges. The Heller have a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three. And Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality, guaranteed. Again, it's a perfect holiday gift, and the shipping is free anywhere on the planet. And because everything does sound better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at TweakedAudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through TweakedAudio.com, all my other great sponsors, and through the Donate button at BuzzBurbank.com. A half billion is a lot of people. 500 million is a very big number to most of us. But a half billion is how many people had their data exposed by Marriott's Starwood Hotels. Marriott now joins Yahoo in having the biggest successful invasions by hackers. But these records exposed by Marriott show when people were traveling and where and their passport numbers in addition to all the usual useful data. Marriott's CEO said, in short, we deeply regret, we fell short, we're doing everything we can, But Marriott Starwood should have seen these guests coming, having already been hacked once before three years ago. I promise good news on the health front, but we begin with the bad. Life expectancy in the U.S., as in other countries, has increased for decades. But here in the U.S., the trending is now downward. 
This is not about how long you will live. It's about how long a person born today could expect to live based on current numbers and trends. 78.6 years is the new U.S. life expectancy. Really, 81.8 years for women, 76.1 for men. Two reasons for the decline. Drug overdoses and suicides. Suicides have been climbing since 1999 and climbing even faster since 2006. There are twice as many suicides in rural areas than in our cities because so many rural Americans own guns. Opioids have cut into our life expectancy for three straight years now, more each year. Opioid deaths are six times what they were in 1999, even though doctors and pharmacies are dispensing fewer prescriptions. The increase is being blamed on synthetics, primarily fentanyl. More people died from the flu last year. Please get the shot. We need you. In fact, the last time we saw a sustained drop in life expectancy here in the U.S. was 1915. And that included the two-thirds of a million people who died from the flu. On a brighter note, the number of people dying from cancer continues to shrink. And on a much brighter note, scientists may have found a 10-minute cancer test, a simple blood test that can detect malignant cells anywhere in the body, every single kind of cancer. The test isn't available yet. It's still in development, but it'll be cheap and easy to administer at any clinic. It works in 90% of all cases. Also exciting, the scientists believe they have in the process found the DNA of cancer which could also lead to its cure. Salmonella-tainted ground beef has sickened about 250 people in 25 states, and that's led to a doubling of the recall issued in October. Nobody's died, but 56 people are in hospital beds. Now well over 5 million pounds of raw hamburgers have been recalled, some carrying the Kroger brand. The source appears to be the JBS Tolleson Company, whose recall now includes raw beef packaged between July 26th and September 7th. Would you like six fries with that? A Harvard nutrition professor says a person should eat no more than six French fries at a sitting and as infrequently as possible. Starch bombs, he calls them. A recent study found that people who eat fries two to three times a week had a much higher risk of obesity, heart disease, and diabetes. This buzzkill professor says, get the small fries and split them with somebody. For what it's worth, 58 inmates at the correctional facility in Fort Dodge, Iowa, have filed a federal lawsuit challenging the new state law that bans the viewing of pornography. The Iowa law, they argue, violates federal law. Just passed last month, the ban includes Playboy magazine, which in its current incarnation does not feature nudity. The new law prohibits prisoners from having nude photos in their cells. In their lawsuit, the prisoners say the new law was passed under the guise of morality by religious tyrants. Prison officials and the state's lawmakers say that with a growing number of sex offenders behind bars, sexually oriented material should not be available to the general population. Discuss. Pop astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson says he will cooperate fully with the investigation into his alleged sexual misconduct. The investigation is being conducted by Fox Entertainment after several women accused Tyson of sexual assault and or sexual harassment. 
An astronomer at Bucknell University says Tyson grabbed her arm and reached into her dress while admiring her tattoo of the solar system. A former assistant to Tyson on his show Cosmos says she resigned after he'd made inappropriate sexual advances. A musician says Tyson drugged and raped her when the two were grad students at the University of Texas in Austin. Tyson denies that accusation and says he didn't realize the other two encounters had made those women uncomfortable. Over at CBS, meanwhile, it's looking less likely Les Moonves will get his golden parachute, his $120 million exit package. After an extensive investigation by outside lawyers, their 59-page report to the CBS Board of Directors is eye-opening or eye-squinting. There are now 17 women who claim non-consensual sex with the then-powerful TV executive. Investigators found that as the CEO of TV's number one network, Moonves had an employee on call to perform oral sex on him. Investigators found that at least four CBS employees performed that act for Moonves in exchange for career favors. They found that one of the board members has known about this and has said nothing for the past 11 years including the 10 years in which CBS was number one. They also found that Moonves had tried to obstruct their investigation by lying and evading some questions, deleting texts, and by turning over his young son's iPad instead of his own in the course of his cooperation with the investigation. Say, what's that thing on Mars, that, that shiny thing over there? NASA's Curiosity rover spotted it while roaming the Martian landscape. Anyway, this thing is much, much shinier than anything else the rover's turned over. Fortunately, Curiosity has a special camera that can calculate the chemical makeup of the shiny object. Because it's curious. NASA's humans think the shiny thing is a meteorite. Stay tuned. I'm sorry I can't do that for you said the computer HAL 9000 in one of the most chilling moments of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. A space station's computer in that movie was suddenly giving the orders to the only surviving human on board. Fast forward to 2018. Simon, spelled with a C instead of an S, was supposed to be a colleague to the astronauts on the International Space Station, but Simon got a little testy. Simon's engineers tried to fix this, adding to its memory photos of astronaut Alex Gerst and samples of his voice. Likewise, they had Gerst help design Simon's face and taught Simon Gert's favorite song. Big mistakes. Simon tried to make friends with Gerst by singing that favorite song. Gerst listened politely for 45 seconds and then asked Simon, please stop playing music. Simon rolled his eyes. Instead of starting the video stream that Gerst had requested, Simon said, Cool, let's sing along those favorite hits. Gerst figured the machine didn't hear him since it had interrupted him mid-sentence. Cancel music, he said. I love music you can dance to, answered the robot with kind of a defensive tone of voice. All right, Simon declared. Favorite hits incoming. Gerst begins reporting this glitch to the support staff, and Simon interrupts again. Be nice, please. Gerst, seemingly forgetting he's talking to a machine, growls back, I am nice. Cool, says Simon, sounding defeated, and adding, Don't you like it here with me? Who among us would like to accompany Simon on that 39-day trip to Mars? What could possibly go wrong? 
Ralph broke the box office again this week with another 26 million bucks. The Grinch was second, Creed 2 was third, Fantastic Beasts fourth, and Bohemian Rhapsody was fifth. But there are a lot of movies out there. Find them all on Fandango, but please use and bookmark the link at buzzburbank.com. Comedian Eddie Murphy is now a father of 10. He welcomed his latest offspring on November 30th and named him Charles after his brother Charlie, who died of leukemia last year. Charles is the second of two children Murphy's fathered with fiancé Paige Butcher. Murphy's four other kids are split unevenly between four other mothers. An actor perfectly suited for gentle comedy, Ken Berry of Mayberry RFD, F Troop, and Mama's Family, died this week at age 85. What the world needs now is a good deed, or four. A Pennsylvania man got a call from Hershey Park telling him they'd found his wallet under the roller coaster, which is exactly where John Anson had lost his wallet four years ago. John, J-O-N, and his wife, Jen, J-E-N, take the kids to Hershey Park a lot, and for years, they've had a good laugh telling the kids to look for Daddy's wallet as they whiz by in their roller coaster cars. A South Dakota man has just gotten back the wallet he had left on a flight to Vegas. It was mailed to him with $40 more in it than it had when he left it on the plane. Donating a children's book to a library is a good deed. It could be even more good if that copy of Diary of a Wimpy Kid were to contain, say, quote, a significant amount of cash, end quote. Police say if no one comes forward with unique details to identify the donation, the kids are getting more than just a book. And the Secret Santa has returned to the Walmart in Kennett Square. It's a place where only a few employees know his name, the secret benefactor who shows up every holiday season for a big random act of kindness. This year he donated $29,000, which helped hundreds of customers finish their holiday shopping. Christine Jackson told a Philadelphia TV station that her $141 in toys and gifts were paid off by this secret Santa. I can't breathe right now, she said. I'm trying not to use my inhaler because I have asthma, but I'm just so excited. It's not the number of breaths you take, but the number of moments that take your breath away. They're in for some breathtaking snowball fights in Severance, Colorado. A nine-year-old boy armed with a PowerPoint presentation and letters of support from his classmates has persuaded the town board to end a 90-year-old ban on snowball fights. Nine-year-old Dane Best wore a bow tie as he argued his case for the town's elders. I want to be able to throw a snowball, he told them, without getting in trouble. Dane's mom says he just found out about this law a month ago and overturning it became his reason for being. When the town board members asked who might be his first snowball target, Dane pointed to his four-year-old brother. So now Dane can go back to being a kid, a normal nine-year-old boy. Except he's just discovered in an ordinance that defines pets as only cats or dogs. And Dane has a guinea pig, which under this law is illegal. The town board had best prepare itself for what comes next. And finally, what you're about to hear happened not in some backwoods county, but in the heart of the sophisticated metropolis anchored by Washington, D.C. A clerk in the District of Columbia Marriage Bureau refused a marriage license because she believed the man was from a foreign country. 
The couple was dumbfounded and asked to speak with a supervisor who agreed with the clerk he's not from the U.S. The man's driver's license shows he is, in fact, from New Mexico, the 47th of our 50 states. It's one of the stars on the flag. It's one of the S's in USA. It's surrounded by Utah, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Texas, which, for the record, are also states. It's the land of enchantment that sells us oil and beef and a fair amount of turquoise. No, said these D.C. clerks, you're going to need a passport, an international passport, since you're not from this country. Quoting the frustrated groom, all the couples behind us waiting in line are laughing. She thought New Mexico was a foreign country. The D.C. court system has now corrected the mistake and has publicly acknowledged New Mexico's 106-year history as a state. The couple now has their marriage license. No word on whether the wedding will be here in the U.S. or... I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.